We are in Matthew 15, verse 1 through 20. I'm going to read it to you first before we get started. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. And Jesus replied, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commands of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of parents or father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called the crowds to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouths. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? And Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They're blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person leads another, they'll both fall into the ditch. And then Peter said, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked, Anything you eat passes through the stomach and goes in the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart, that's what defiles you, from the, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. Let me pray for us. First of all, Father, we want to say thank you for this word that has been written down for us, that has been studied so much, commented on, passed along, translated in so many different ways, so that we can dig into it here some 2,000 years later. And when we dig into it, Lord, we don't find man-made traditions. What we find is a man. Jesus, who happened to be God, and we find spirit, and we find truth, and we find life. And I pray, Lord, this morning that your word will do what you mean for it to do, which is to divide us, joint and marrow and bone and spirit, and to dig into our heart and to to divide, Lord, out the things in us that are of the old man so that we can crucify it and to point out the things in us, the seeds that you've been planting and to point out our hearts, Lord, the soil of our hearts, Lord, the things that Jesus has been teaching us in Matthew, that we can tend to these seeds, that they can grow and flourish and take root and bear fruit in our lives. That's what we all desire, Lord, deep down in our hearts. It's why we get up and come out on cold December mornings to sit in a school. It's not to hear a man speak, not sing a few pretty songs. It's to encounter and engage a living God. 
and to hear his words and to meet him, to surrender our lives and let him change us. And I pray you do that in us this morning. Amen. Okay, so there is a bunch going on in this verse. There is a whole bunch of things that you look at and you're like, what in the world? What is Jesus so angry about? And what I want to do is try to unpack this. So we are going to go to school a little bit. We're going to get a little technical on some Hebrew books and some Hebrew law and some other things, but I promise I've tried to make it as easy and simple as possible so you understand not only what Jesus is saying, but what he's doing here, because what he is doing here is actually really, really important even to us today. So the first section of, turn it on, there we go. So some Pharisees and religious laws now arrive from Jerusalem. So Jesus is still up in the Galilee. Remember the Sea of Galilee, and he's up in the top part, Capernaum, and Jerusalem's way down here. He's gone up there. He was from Nazareth. They didn't like him, so he goes up top. He's been spending all of his time on the top of this lake, every now and then sailing back and forth across it, storms, going over here and doing some things. So this is his last public thing he will do in Galilee. He's going to go spend some time with the Gentiles over here, and then he's going to begin his march to Jerusalem. And what has happened is word has reached Pharisees in Jerusalem, and they have come up, and they it seems like they've been following him around and watching him, seeing what's going on. So they brought in the heavyweights. You might imagine this is some local jurisdiction crime has happened, and they've brought the feds in. Right, So this is like something happens in Gravit and the FBI shows up, or people from D.C., right? That's what you imagine, right? There's enough people watch crime shows, you know what I'm talking about. All right, that's what's happening here. So they come to him, and they actually ask a fairly respectful question. It's a little loaded, and it's got some subtext in it. It's, why do your disciples disobey? Now, they would never say, why do you disobey? But the implication is, we know that your disciples only do what they see you do, because that's the way discipleship works. They imitate the one that they follow. So we notice that your disciples don't follow this old tradition of washing your hands before you eat. And every mother in here is saying, yeah, they should wash their hands before they eat. That's what I tell my kids. It's not an age-old tradition, right? It's just it's mom's law. You wash your hands before you eat, right? It's good hygiene. That's not what we're talking about here. So give me a five-minute rabbit trail. I might try and do it in two minutes. Rabbit trail onto what exactly are they talking about? Moses on Sinai received the law. He received a written law, and there is a way of reading the text that might indicate that the Lord spoke some things to him that weren't written down. There is a lot written on this. If you want to go deep into a rabbit hole, especially on traditional Jewish thinking and belief, that one is a rabbit hole you can spend a lot of time in. Suffice it to say, what happened is Moses came down with two things, a written law, and what developed over time was an oral or a spoken law. And it's very important in this situation that you understand that. The written law. Often you hear the Torah and you might think, oh, the Torah is the written law. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. The entire written law is actually called the Tanakh, which is an acronym for three things. 
for the law and the prophets in the writing. Tanaka. So the Hebrew words that mean that is basically an acronym saying the law and the prophets and the writing. We hear a lot of times in the New Testament where they talk about the law and the prophets. And when they talk about that, they mean the law and the prophets. It is literally, with the exception of the order of the books, exactly the Old Testament that you have in your lap or on your app. Literally. It is the exact same book. The Hebrews would have thought the law tells us how absolutely we are supposed to live. The prophets tell us the heart of God, and the writings give us a little bit of extra. What they also had is this entire other thing called the oral law. The oral law was not written down until around 190 to 230 A.D. It's a very interesting time when this one man decided to write it all down. It consists of two things. One is all of these codes, the oral codes that were to be followed. They are the Mishnah. I've shared this with you before. There's six orders or sort of big books in the Mishnah. And then there is this thing called the Gemara. And it's not important that you know all these. Just know that there is the written law, which is called the Torah. And there's the Mishnah and the Gemara. If you've ever heard the Talmud, that's what that is. There are two books If you were good Hebrews or Jewish scholars, you would be studying these two books. One written law, one oral law. What we're talking about today is what's going on in the Mishnah. Now, it wasn't written down at the time. They would have just discussed it all the time. So this is what Pharisees, if you wanted to grow up and be a rabbi or a Pharisee, you would have studied not only the written things down on the scrolls, but you would have discussed in your group, with your rabbi, in your house, all of these other things over here. Now, what's great is we don't have to just memorize them all. They actually wrote them down. So now we can see what they are. And in the Mishnah, there are actually six big books that cover things. I've talked about these before. There are two that we're going to talk about today. One is Nashim, which is there's a whole section on women. Why Os are in the book on women, I don't know. And then there's another one on Tahorot, which is all about the purities. Inside of each of these, there are multiple different sections down. Can you just, does it feel like completely and utterly overwhelming? Can you imagine if this was just all oral and spoken, right? And so what you had developed is you had two things. You had the written law, the Old Testament, and you had the oral law and commentary. And what Jesus and the Pharisees are about to fight over is, Which one of these is going to be more authoritative, and which one is Jesus actually fulfilling, and which one is he actually eradicating? Because what Jesus is coming in here is he is talking about your oral law and commentary, and I'm going to show you this, is actually standing in opposition to this written law, this Torah that is going on. This is the battle that's taking place. So sorry for that rabbit trail. I hope nobody nodded off during that. But it was really important that you understood this. Otherwise, you're just going to think Jesus likes to pick fights with Pharisees. And that is not what is going on here. A way to think about this is the oral law over there is very similar to our law. Judgments that would happen. Things that would be brought before judges. Decisions to be made. Whether over disputes about land or criminal actions, etc., And think in terms of the Mishnah, in terms of guiding their culture. So much of what was cultural and how they practiced certain things. And there are three cultural things that Jesus goes after and actually undoes in his life and ministry on earth. The first one is circumcision. 
The second one is the Sabbath, and the third one is kosher foods. We're going to deal with kosher foods mostly this morning. We don't practice any of those things. Jesus is undoing a lot of these practices. And in fact, when you read your New Testament, you will see New Testament Christians, Paul and Peter, wrestling over kosher food. You'll see Paul talking a lot about circumcision. It is because these are cultural identities of Jewish people, and it is important to understand as you read your New Testament to understand that this was birthed out of not only this written law, but it was birthed out of this culture and these people. Okay. Jesus replied, by your traditions, your oral law, your culture, your things that you have added to what God has done, you violate the direct commandments of God. Your Mishnah is in conflict with the Torah, and I'm going to point it out to you. For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. There's your references down below. Exodus 20, 12, Deuteronomy 5, 16, talk about honor your father and mother. That's the Decalogue. That is the Ten Commandments of the Bible. These are big ones here. The next one, anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. Exodus 21, 17 and Leviticus 29. Jesus says, but you say in your oral tradition here, the thing that you have added to and built around this, that it's okay to say to their parents, I'm sorry I can't help you for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. There is an entire section in the Mishnah about vows and how vows happen, and there is one in particular called a korban. In fact, if you read about this account in Mark 7, you will see the word korban. Think of it almost like if you were really wealthy and you wanted to create a trust and you wanted to give money in your will to a charitable organization around here. Let's say you picked just any one that you liked in particular, the Boys and Girls Club. You said, when I die, this amount of money goes to the Boys and Girls Club. And so because I want to make sure I give X, you could actually identify a million dollars of your wealth that was going to go to the Boys and Girls Club. Now, you might be able to keep that money in a bank account and live off of the interest while you were alive, but you could not dig into that principal money to help anybody that was around you, say your parents who were older and ailing. You would say, no, I've actually dedicated, I have vowed this money to God so that when I die, this money goes to the temple to the priest and into that. And so you might see how it could have developed a whole way of creating a whole set of laws that would incentivize a group of people to identify a whole bunch of gifts that they would not use while they were alive so that when they died, it would go to the temple and you might find that the priests and all of that system would be very incentivized to keep that whole thing going. So that when... The law says, honor your father and mother, and what it actually means is when they are old and they are poor and they are sick, you take care of them physically. Not I always speak well of them. I grew up thinking that it was always you never say something bad about your parents even if you don't have the greatest parents in the world. That is not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what the law is teaching. It is teaching that the honor due is when your parents are old, you take care of them. And what Jesus is saying is you have made a loophole in this system to allow people to identify things that they're like, hey, I know I got this little pot of money, but I vowed it to God. 
And so I can't help you with this, Mom. I can't help you with this, Dad. I'm really sorry about that. And he is saying, you have created all of these things over here that actually cause you to violate the thing that God cares about, which is honor to the father and the mother. Does that make sense? Yes? Good. This is why he's saying, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God, Isaiah 29, 13. It's the Greek version. I won't even go into what does the, the Greek version mean. Just know that if you look this up in your Bible, it's going to read a little differently. It's because it's a different translation. Here is what Isaiah 29, 13, the non-Greek version, looks like. And one thing that I wanted to point out is this whole point that Jesus is making here is their hearts are far from me. You've created a whole bunch of man-made rules and traditions and an entire culture and you've set yourself at the top of it and you argue over it and you debate it and you have whole schools of people who believe you interpret this one thing in this section of the law, in this book, in this chapter, on this line. We're down here, or you're arguing, you're picking on my guys about this little thing over here, and your hearts are nowhere to be found. You have gotten so bent out of shape over all of these little things and keeping it the way you want it, you've missed me entirely. Now, when the Bible talks about heart, we probably think of it in a 21st century way, right? We think immediately of love songs Valentine's Day and romance. We think of emotion when we think of heart, right? If someone sings about their heart, they're not singing about their volition, their will. They're not singing about their thoughts. They're singing about their emotion. This is not what the Bible means. 800 times this word cardia is used in the Bible, and never once is it talking about, about the physical pump inside your body, It is actually talking more about this piece of gray matter that sits between your ears. Some definitions of it look like the mind, character, inner self, will, intention, center. When we say heart, it's not the gushy emotional thing that it's talking about. It's talking more about your capacity for moral preference. There's a couple of great words. The desire producer. Whatever it is inside of you that creates desire. The answer to that question, what do I want right now in my life most, what do I want, is answered by this biblical idea of the heart. Another one that I loved a lot are desire decisions that establish who we really are. We've talked before about how our decisions in life, the choices that we make are the things that actually develop and build out our character. That is what he's talking about in here. That's the heart that he's making reference to. A simple way to think of it is it's literally the center of all physical and spiritual life. It is the core you that makes you you. This is what Jesus is saying is very far away from me. Your body's doing all of these things. You're standing up on the outside, but you're sitting down on the inside. Or you're miles away, even though you're right here in the room. Jesus, in a very funny, if you imagine him having this little interaction with, uh, uh, with the Pharisees, many of the commentators believe that he literally, not later, he literally just has this little argument. And then he turns around to all the people and says, hey, let me explain this to you. 
right? Just totally turns his back on this group that he's been having this conversation with and turns around here and says, it isn't what goes into your mouth that defiles you. Now, we don't understand how radical a thought this is, but I told you before, one of the three core identities of the Jewish people were these practices around food. There are lengthy passages in the entire Old Testament, in the written law about what to eat and what not to eat, what kinds of animals. And what Jesus is saying in a singular sentence is, it's not that which defiles you. All of these things that they're saying, if you eat of these foods, it's going to defile you. He is saying that is not what is the case. There is something else that defiles you. Now, anybody just walking around with a working definition of defiles in their head? Yes? No? Probably not? It's not a word we use every day, right? We don't use defile every day. It seems like kind of an intense word. Um, and I, I looked it up, and when I was looking up the definition, you know, have you ever looked up define whatever in Google, and it gives you all the defined results, but it also shows you how often the word has been used over time. Have you ever noticed that, that little graph? Anybody ever seen that? You should do that. Next time you want to know what a word means, go into Google and type def- define defile, and it will literally show you the definitions, and below that, because they've scanned so many books, it'll show you how often the word is used over time. The word defile was very popular in the 1800s, specifically late 1700s and early 18. Peak, peak usage. We might imagine, I could imagine sitting in some hard pews in New England and hearing the word defiled quite a lot, right? And then we're finding it sort of tapers down, tapers down, tapers down, and it's made a little resurgence lately, just a little here in the late. I I have no earthly idea why. So I looked up a definition of defiled. It means to sully or mar or spoil. It comes from an old French word, which means to trample down. Starts to paint a picture for you. In fact, there was a different dictionary that gave the definition to spoil something or someone so they become less beautiful or pure. To spoil something or someone so they become less beautiful or pure. I couldn't help thinking of a woman on her wedding day in her beautiful gown and dressed and someone coming and pushing her down in the dirt or someone spilling something on her, someone ruining that beautiful, perfect dress where she's never looked more lovely, she's never been more radiant, she's never been more excited That's the picture you should have in your mind of defiled and what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about not that you are evil and you're wicked and you're cast out. He is talking about you are actually putting filth on something beautiful. You are bruising something that is delicate and pure and lovely. The flip side of defiled is to actually say the thing that you are messing up is so precious and lovely. And what Jesus is actually talking about here are the people. And it's almost as though Jesus is saying, if you understood how beautiful you are to me, and that every time you do these things, the way it mars and sullies and stains you and dulls the overall effect of how you are, 
you would think a lot more about those things that go on inside of you. And then the disciples come up and say, did you realize that you offended the disciples? Matthew loves this word. It's scandalizo. Literally, if you try to type that in, it will, it will autocorrect to scandalize because it is where we get the word scandalize. I love that word. I love when a Greek word just looks so English. And I love the fact that the disciples came up to him and said, do you realize that you scandalized the Pharisees? Right? You've, you've scandalized them. They can't believe that you've spoken to them this way. You've gone totally against all of it. You didn't even answer their questions, A. And then, B, you just absolutely and utterly scandalized them. And you might get some images or echoes of parables that you've heard Jesus teach where he talked about the parable of the soils and he talked about the wheat and the tares together and things getting pulled up and uprooted. Jesus is staying in this metaphor and saying, look, basically they're blind guides. You should not be listening to them. You should not be following them, right? They are not after my heart. They're not after my ethos. They don't understand what I'm about. They don't even understand what the old system and way is about. You should not be following them. And then Peter, obviously they've bumped Peter to the front and said, hey, look, he's not listening to us. Go talk to him about this. And so he's saying, basically, can you, do you really mean this? This is what I think Peter's saying. I think it's very easy to look and Jesus' response to say, do you not understand? And think, that Jesus just thinks he has a bunch of buffoons traveling around, and he's like, look, the Pharisees got this, and the whole crowd get it. How can you not understand? No, I think they understood perfectly what he was saying. I think what they're asking him is asking him to clarify. They're coming up to Jesus and saying, are you really saying this to them? Do you really mean that you're undoing all of these things? And I'm going to guess that we're in that position a lot. I'm going to guess we're in a position where quite often we are either scandalized by the things we feel Jesus poking on in our lives, and what we find ourselves doing is coming back to him and going, really? Like, are you, are you, do you really want me to walk through this? Are you really asking me to lay this down? Are you really saying this to me? Do I really have to go forgive this person after everything they've done to me? And yet that one little thing I have to go ask for forgiveness for, Really? Is that really what you're doing here, God? I think disciples of Jesus find themselves in that situation over and over and over and over again. And Jesus is saying, anything you eat passes into the stomach and goes into the sewer. I love the way Bible translators try not to say the actual literal Greek word, toilet, It's never translated toilet, even though that's the Greek word, and there's like 52 different ways that we've gotten around it, sewer, waste, other other different things. I I get a kick out of that all the time. Jesus' point here is the words you speak come from the heart, and that is what defiles you. From the heart come evil thoughts, and these evil thoughts and the words that you say are going to turn into. They are the place, they're the location of these actions that actually the law speaks against. This is the location, this is the place where all of these things the law speaks against, where they come from. And if you find yourself saying things that are on the path towards an action down here, you need to know that your heart is already defiled. If you find yourself saying things 
even though you're not acting it out, if you find yourself dwelling on it mentally, even though you're not acting it out, whether it's hateful, whether it's lustful, whatever it is, revengeful, angry, spiteful, those thoughts turn into words that turn into actions, but your heart is already in a condition of defilement. You've already allowed your heart to become stained. That's what defiles you. Eating with unwashed hands never defiles you. Sexual immorality, there's that Greek word, porneia. We've talked about that word before. It covers a whole host of things. And that word slander there is literally blasphemies. What is Jesus doing here? Right? Why is he saying this? What's the point he's trying to make? I actually think there's three levels to what Jesus is doing here, and there's three reasons for why he's doing it. The first thing, I think he is undoing kosher laws because he understands they are about to make, he and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are about to make a way for the Gentiles to come in. And one of the things that excludes, in fact, it will exclude in the New Testament, it will exclude in Acts, it will turn into a showdown between Peter and Paul. Two of the pillars of the faith in the early New Testament will have it out in Acts and in letters. And I think Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are standing here and looking there and saying, there are things that have come up around this culture that if we don't make a case now for it, if I'm not explicit about this, this is going to hang on and it is going to keep people from coming into the kingdom. Paul, later in Galatians, is actually going to talk about this around a very specific issue. And I want to put you just for a second in the context of this issue. Can you imagine if someone erected an idol in our city, Bentonville? Let's say there's a 20-foot idol. I won't even pick on a specific one. It could be any idol or any god. And people are coming to it, and they are sacrificing sheep and cattle in front of that. And they are cutting up the meat, and they are cooking part of it, and they're giving the rest to a butcher, and there's a butcher shop on that property. You buying your lamb from Easter there? Not even joking. Are you, buy, are you ever going to shop there? Ever. This is what Paul was talking about in Galatians when he talks about meat sacrifice to idols. And he references back to this particular time where Jesus is talking. And he is saying, if you think going and buying that meat is wrong, if in your heart, if in this center place of you, if in the place where your desires come from, that is wrong, then it will defile you because you think it is wrong and you go do it anyway. That is what it means to defile yourself. That is a defiled heart. He's saying, it's not wrong. It's meat. <laughs> if you want to go buy it, buy it. But the loving thing is, if you have a brother or sister that you're in relationship with, and you know that would scandalize them, do not go buy it and cook it and invite them over for dinner. That is the loving thing here. And so this is a very real issue that is going to live for a century in the new church. And Jesus knows this and is dealing with it. 
Level two, Jesus is continuing to internalize our devotion. We have looked at this since the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you look lustfully, it's as though you committed adultery. If you say you're an idiot, it's just like you killed the person. He is taking all of this external religious ceremonial action, and he is pushing it into our hearts. We've been talking about this over and over and over again. He is saying there is a center in you from which flows all desires. Last time I stood up here and taught, I taught on the parable of the soil. When you hear heart, you should hear soul. You should think soil. And what Jesus keeps saying is, is that soil is important It is that soil that I'm trying to plant seed in. It is that soil that's either going to grow thistles and thorns. It is going to grow nothing or it is going to grow fruit from the kingdom. He cares enormously about what's going on inside of there. Now, level one, some people did okay at living this, and there was enough ceremony to sort of do away with it. Level two, once he starts pushing into our hearts... What he is doing here is exposing the unbelievable need that we have. The incredible, but how are we going to live this? You're telling me that if I'm angry and say, ah, that guy is an idiot, it's like I killed him, I have defiled my heart to such a degree, how in the world are we going to live this out, Jesus? And what he knows and what we know, but what they don't know is that he is walking towards this. See, I think in the New Testament when it says Jesus did not consider equality with God but emptied himself and became a baby, that was the beginning of a life of defiling himself for you. Do you realize how degrading it is for the creator of the universe to make himself a creation. Think about how hard it is for us to serve one another. If you're a manager to do something for one of your deadbeat employees, think about how hard that is. This is the one that created all of you, became one of us, and then marched towards False accusation, complete and utter abandonment, a wrongful conviction, a carrying his own cross, a beating, a stripping naked, a wearing thorns on the head, and a hanging naked on a tree between two thieves, becoming utterly defiled. The beautiful one, the one who is perfect and stainless and without blemish. A life that we could only ever dream of living into became utter and complete defilement so that you and I could become utterly beautiful. And when you feel the Holy Spirit poking on something in your life, don't hear, hey, you worthless piece of trash. Get it going. You need to hear, you beautiful, wonderful, glorious new creation. Don't tromp through the mud. 
you're going to spill that slop all over you, and it is going to mess up that beautiful garment I gave you. Because see, we don't just live on this side of the cross. We don't just live on the other side of the cross. We live on the other side of Pentecost. Not just the place where our sins got taken away and we got a good life, but where the Holy Spirit was actually sent down into a way of transforming you, not from just a cleaned up old person, but transforming you, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, into something utterly new that the world has never, ever seen before that has not existed. You live on the other side of both of those, and this should be glorious to you. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible was the one that John the Baptist said. He said, I'm going to baptize you with water for repentance. I'm going to get you wet. I'm going to literally wash off the outside of you, but you're going to walk around again the same man or woman just cleaned up a little. You're going to have to come back for another washing and another washing and another washing. If you wash something with water, it is still the same thing that it was before. It's just clean. But he says there's one coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, but he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And fire doesn't leave you alone. Fire transforms everything it consumes, and it is not the same at the end. You do not set something in a fire and pull it out, and it be the same. It is transformed forever. And that is the thing that he is offering you, not just to make you okay in between your confessional times. That is not what Jesus came to do. And I believe some of the reason why Jesus went off into so many of these lonely places and prayed all the time is I can just imagine. In fact, this week I was imagining in my head this one prayer time where he was just like, Lord, these boys that have been following me around, we're going to have to do a lot more for them, for them to be able to take this on and lead this church. I'm just telling you, I could walk around with them for 20 years, and they're not going to be able to do it. We're going to have to do something. That whole Holy Spirit thing we talked about after I ascend, we're going to like, that is a really, really good idea. Please promise me we're still planning on doing that. Because these folks are going to need something to come inside that desire center of them and to rewire it, to mess with it, to twist it around, to burn it up and to transform it and to make it new. And every time I stand up here, this is the thing that I hope you guys hear and I hope some point you believe me on is that that is what he is holding out to you. I don't care how many times you have tried and you've jacked it up. I don't care what a screw up you are. I don't care how you failed or how many times you failed. I don't care how long you've been walking with him. I don't care what you've done for him. What he is after is your heart. And he doesn't want to wash it. He wants to transform it. He wants to make it new. 
And I can still remember that desperate longing when I was standing in a worship time in Mexico, going down to hand out Bibles to do religious activities. And I was standing there as a 16-year-old kid, looking around at everybody else and saying, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know who they're talking to, but I'm not sensing that. And I have got to have that. And I remember sitting on a bus with the youth leader and him praying and just weeping as the Holy Spirit took my heart and transformed it. And the reason why I stand up here and I cry every time I talk about it is because the Holy Spirit keeps reaching down His hand and grabbing my heart and making it new. No matter what I've done, no matter how bad I've defiled it, No matter how much forgiveness I need from the people I love around me, he keeps doing that over and over and over again. So as we move back into worship, I literally have one question for you, and it is, where is your heart? And if you don't know the answer to that question, let me tell you how you can know the answer to that question. When we stand in a minute... And in fact, you can all stand with me now. Go ahead and stand. I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes as we enter into worship. And wherever you go mentally, that's where your heart is. Wherever you go when you come into the worship of the Lord, whenever you come into a place where His presence is where the point and purpose is for you to come and say, here's this screwed up child that loves you. I need you, Holy Spirit, to come into my heart and make it new again. Yes, I'm sorry. It's bruised. I got muck on it. I messed up. I am so sorry. Please come into my heart and make it new. Wherever your mind goes in that moment, other than that place, That's where your heart's at. This is not judgment. This is where I, this is how I judge my own heart when I come into worship and I'm like, Lord, why is my mind on my to-do list? Why is my mind on that conversation? Why is my, and it's like, because that's where you're at. That's where your heart is. And what he wants and what he has always wanted is our heart in his hands. Close your eyes. I'm going to pray for us. Holy Spirit, come. Come into each heart here. Do your transformational work. I am so glad you're called the comforter. Come and wrap around us like a comforter on a cold day. As we're sitting and it's gray outside and it's raining and it's cold outside, it's that way in many of our lives, God, and we need you wrapped around our heart, but don't leave our hearts the same. Change us, transform us. Jesus, we need that fiery transformation inside of us, and I pray that as we move back into worship, you'll do that in our hearts. I pray as we move into a season of Advent, you'll do that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.